War games. The war game. A war game. What exactly are we talking about in this episode? In nuclear war chatter, war games probably refers to the 1983 film starring Matthew Broderick. The war game will refer to the 1965 controversial and Oscar-winning documentary about nuclear war, and which we've covered in a previous podcast. And a war game, which we're looking at today, can refer to a bunch of military bigwigs or civil servants gathered round a table enacting a war scenario, working out how many bombs will drop, which targets will they fall on, where will the fallout go, how many dead, which roads will be open, how will we move people, how will we get supplies around the country. They're enacting war, they're playing at war. (laughs) It's a war game. War games, or exercises, took place regularly throughout the Cold War. One of the most infamous, of course, was Abel Archer, which formed the basis of the excellent drama Deutschland 83, and which arguably pushed us horribly close to nuclear war. But today we're focusing on Square Leg from 1980, one of Britain's most infamous war games. Now, we all know that the government didn't tell us the unvarnished truth about nuclear war during the Cold War. And although it pains me to say it, can we really blame them? Did they even know themselves? If they had told us some very unpleasant truths, there might have been total panic in the streets. There might have been suicides. Not to mention a huge surge in favour of nuclear disarmament, which could, of course, have played nicely into the hands of the Soviet Union. So, when we look at civil defence information campaigns and plans we often see a watered-down version of nuclear devastation. The classic example, of course, is Protect and Survive, which tells you that you can endure nuclear war by making use of kitchen doors, a mattress and a bottle of Dettol. And that's why war games are so interesting, because the people who were running these exercises didn't need to water anything down because the public weren't supposed to know about it. When it comes to square leg, all of the horrible detail in that exercise wasn't supposed to make its way to us. It did so thanks to the work of Duncan Campbell, the journalist who wrote about it in the New Statesman. So the picture of Britain under nuclear attack in square leg seemed realistic. Of course, we can't ever claim it was realistic because it didn't happen. But from what we know, uh, we can say that yes, it seemed realistic, certainly far more realistic than any of the wimpy nonsense in Protect and Survive. Square Leg was blunt and factual and not hampered by a need not to scare the horses. So what did Square Leg actually imagine? What was the content of their war game? We'll turn to one of the magazines of Subterranea Britannica, or Sub-Brit, as the cool kids call it. For those who don't know, it's a society devoted to poking around in holes, I suppose, mines and caves and tunnels, and, yes, nuclear bunkers. And occasionally their society's magazine, Subterranea, 
I admit when I get the magazine, I skim straight past all the stuff about blokes exploring some tin mines. I just don't care. I want the bunkers. So in one of the issues I have before me, I retained it because there was a special feature in it about Square Leg, written by Jane McGregor. So let's make use of that here. War games or exercises always had a story attached to them. It wasn't just a case of drawing up a map, planting some targets on it, and then calculating the blast and fallout and chaos and death. No, there was always a timeline, an imaginary timeline, showing how we might slip into war. According to Jane McGregor's article, Under Square Leg, the Warsaw Pact were holding an exercise of their own, but this was one involving actual movement of troops. It wasn't just people around a desk with some papers. In this scenario, the troops moved closer and closer to the Iron Curtain, reached the border, and stayed there. Soon they began issuing demands, well not the troops, the Warsaw Pact or the Soviet Union, began issuing demands that Denmark and Norway withdraw from NATO. Of course this was an unacceptable demand and so tensions between the Warsaw Pact and NATO erupted. Through a horribly tense but imaginary May, June and July, tensions escalated between East and West. And so Britain began to put some of its civil defence plans into place as war loomed. Square Leg moves us into August and things get so bad that we begin to empty the hospitals. See previous episodes of my podcast on how that would have worked? Petrol rationing begins and local councils start preparing their bunkers. Of course, some didn't have bunkers. They simply had a basement under the town hall which they had tried to reinforce. Some didn't do that at all because they were nuclear-free zones. Again, this is all in my podcast archive. Go back through and you'll find all of this nuclear beauty in there for you. So councils start manning their bunkers and all of the nation's art treasures are taken out of city galleries and museums to safety. There are also lots of angry demonstrations taking place around the country and the police use these to round up suspected political subversives. Moving into September, we see Dover and other ports absolutely jammed with worried British people returning home from abroad. And a few days after that, the ports and BA are requisitioned by the government. Panic buying breaks out, although I would assume it would have broken out before this late stage. But panic buying breaks out and most civilian phone lines are disconnected. Again, there's a previous episode where all these plans have been covered. The one about phones is one of the most popular episodes I've ever done. Um, You all really seem to love hearing about what would happen to telephones in nuclear war. And then, in a terrifying move, which must have told everyone that the end was near, Protect and Survive drops through your letterbox and lands with a slap on your hallway floor. At the same time, Protect and Survive films are broadcast on TV and radio. At this point, some people try to leave the cities. They try to self-evacuate, because as we know, by the 80s, there was no evacuation scheme in place in Britain, mainly because there was absolutely no point. But panic gets the better of people, of course, understandably. 
and some people try to run and leave against government advice and protect and survive, which is, of course... You are better off in your own home. Stay there. And then we reach the 15th of September and war is declared. But it doesn't go nuclear right away. It begins with some conventional bombing. And of course this sparks even more unplanned and chaotic self-evacuation from the cities. But now that we're actually at war, the main roads of Britain have been declared essential service routes. Again, see past episodes on that. And so civilians may not use them. They're reserved for the military, the police, etc. And so in a panic to get away from cities, people pile into their cars and choke the back roads and the side roads and trying to escape. And so, obviously, gridlock arrives. There are traffic jams. People have effectively done the job of the government in saying you may not evacuate, you should not leave. With this gridlock, people have effectively blocked the roads themselves. And many remain gridlocked there in their cars when the bomb drops. So 15th of September, war is declared, and on 17th of September, a Wednesday... The sirens finally sound. Attack warning red. Squareleg tells us that Filingdales have detected the incoming missiles and have the warning sounded at 11.55am. And according to this article, the first missiles hit Britain at 11.59, giving us an exact four-minute warning. Well done, Filingdales. Interestingly, Squarelegs says that the nuclear attack came in two waves. The first coming at midday, which focused mainly on military targets. And then a second came an hour later, hitting civilian targets. However, there was no siren the second time around, because Filingdales is gone. Knocked out in the first strike. Although I assume most civilians would have needed a warning for this second wave. I don't think by that point many of us would have been sitting in our armchairs doing a crossword and occasionally tutting at the wife. What's all that racket out there? And does it seem unseasonably warm to you? So it's important to remember, of course, that nuclear war could indeed come in waves. Perhaps it's lazy of me, but I am, or overly dramatic of me, but I always imagine a nuclear war as flash and blast wave and then just eternal cold and darkness and horror with the war over in minutes. But no, you could be subject to hours, hours and days of nuclear war. Here are some other little horrible details from Square Leg with what they imagined would happen to Britain. Heathrow Airport, of course our biggest airport, gets two bombs on it. An air burst and a ground burst. Of course, both different types of bomb have different effects. They're both nuclear bombs, of course, but they explode, one on the ground, one on the air, and they have hugely different effects. An air burst is all about devastation, physical devastation. The bomb explodes in the air, above its target, of course, so the blast wave, unimpeded, is able to fling itself out wide and free, nothing to constrain it, so it can flatten a hell of a lot of stuff. But a ground burst, 
which detonates, of course, on its target on the ground, drives itself into the earth and creates a huge crater. And all the debris and dust from that crater gets sucked up into the mushroom cloud, where it becomes irradiated and eventually falls back to earth softly as fallout. So your air burst knocks everything down and your ground burst sucks everything up. And poor old Heathrow gets both, just for good measure. And also, according to Square Leg, the centre of London, or inner London, isn't bombed at all. That might sound odd, as we all imagine London, of course, as the ultimate prime target in any nuclear war involving Britain. In the excellent QED documentary, A Guide to Armageddon, which you can find on YouTube, they imagine Ground Zero as St Paul's Cathedral. But in Square Leg, no. Plenty of bombs fall around London, in Essex, uh, Potter's Bar in Hertfordshire, Croydon in Surrey, and of course Heathrow, but nothing in inner London. And we can assume that they didn't need to, because the resulting fallout from the bombs around London would take care of those Londoners. So you can kill a city indirectly by planting bombs around it and letting the evil tendrils of fallout reach out and choke it to death. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. It can be deadly dangerous. It rises high in the air and can be carried by winds for hundreds of miles before falling to the ground. Turning to Duncan Campbell again, he makes this point very vividly in one of his excellent New Statesman articles entitled World War III, an exclusive preview. You can find this on Duncan Campbell's website. He points out that Square Leg imagines Eastbourne being hit. Now, no offence, Eastbourne, but what have you got that's so important? To any non-British people listening in, Eastbourne is a genteel seaside resort in the south of England with a reputation for caring for the respectable elderly tourist. And it's also famous for being in one of the funniest lines in Faulty Towers. What I'm suggesting is that this place is the, the crummiest, shoddiest, worst-run hotel in the whole of Western Europe. No! No, I won't have that. There's a place in Eastbourne. <laughs> so, why have they hit Eastbourne and hit it with a whopping great ground burst? I'll let Duncan Campbell's article explain his theory as to why the genteel holidaymakers were getting it. He says, A few centres which have no obvious industrial or strategic importance, such as Penzance, Oxford or McInleth, may be wrongly plotted or wrongly aimed, or perhaps they are simply the butts of some malicious humour by the directing staff of Square Leg who drew up the plans. The bomb on Eastbourne may have had a different intent, however, As a ground burst, the fireball would suck up large quantities of earth, which would be later deposited as fallout. Given the prevailing southerly wind at the time of the attack, the fallout plumes would quickly spread to cover London and other parts of the southeast. The radioactive ash of the Eastbourne dead would thus be used as a weapon against those alive to the north. So that is our look at what Square Leg predicted for us all in 1980. 
Next week we'll go onwards and see what they thought the reaction would be on the ground. Did we all take it? Nice and calm? Would we be stoic and orderly and reasonable? You know the answer, but tune in next week as we examine more of Square Leg. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and maybe, hopefully, my voice sounds a bit calmer as we've now properly moved into a new house and I have carved out a bit more stability and peace in which to work. Oh, and in case you don't follow me on social media, I posted yesterday that Threads is currently on YouTube. It seems the BBC frequently have it taken down, as is their right, I assume. So I'd suggest getting onto YouTube if you've yet to see this nuclear classic and let me know what you think of it. Remember, if you enjoy my podcast and want to chip in a small donation each month, you can do it via Patreon. Depending on which level of support you choose, you can even get nuclear rewards. And remember, you can cancel at any time because I know things are shaky for us all at the moment. So there is always the option of just hitting cancel if you can't afford or you don't want to continue with the payment. So take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. Your support is appreciated. This week before I go, let me give a shout out to the following patrons. David Daly, Matt Weston, Mark Hillary, Rebecca Sullivan, Henry T. Drummond, J. Butler Moore, Auden Malman, Richard Allam, Runebot Techno Union Rep. Yep, I always look forward to reading out this guy's patron name. Luke Guthridge, Richard Hewitt, Liz, Debbie and Lisa Hughes. And remember and come back next week for more of Square Leg. Square Leg.